Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Here's our host and Squad Locker CEO, Gary Goldberg. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of On The Whistle. This is uh, a special edition here. We've got a gentleman by the name of Wick Rosbeck. Wick, the lead owner and governor of the beloved Boston Celtics, which he bought with an LLC by the name of Banner 17, which is an interesting name, and and I want to get into that a little bit. Uh, Wick is also a co-founder of a company by the name of Causeway Media Partners, which is a private equity firm. And in full disclosure, uh, Wick and his team are investors in Squad Locker, Squad Locker who brings us on the whistle every week. Um, more impressive than the things I've already listed, if that wasn't enough. Wick has a remarkable amount of philanthropy uh, in his life. He is um, chair of Mass Eye and Ear in Boston. Boston Children's Hospital is part of his philanthropic uh, outwork. Camp uh, Jabberwocky, which is a really beautiful uh, camp and facility on Martha's Vineyard for uh, children and young people with uh, ability complexities, uh, Boys and Girls Club of Boston, and a whole host of other things that he's dedicated his time, effort, and treasure to. So, Wick, um, thanks for coming on. It's it's great to see you, and it's nice to have a chance to have a conversation with you. Gary, I appreciate the invite. Any, any chance to talk to you is a, is a lot of fun, and I always uh, uh, enjoy it. And then this is a special occasion to be able to talk about a really important topic. Yeah. So, so let's get into it a little bit. Wick, um, what was it like growing up where you grew up? I think you grew up in Weston, Mass. Um, is that right? And so I, I went to Brandeis University, which is right next to Weston, and I used to go for these long bike rides. And Weston, for the for our listeners who don't know, is um, it's a place with big backyards and lots of trees and windy roads and bike paths and stone walls. <clears throat> and so sports for you growing up, was it like, um, you know, pickup games? Was it street hockey? Was it? Did you Little League it? What'd you do? Well, well, to get to Weston, I did grow up in Weston. I was born in Worcester, but in between Worcester and Weston, uh, there were five or six years there where we moved all over the place in the Midwest and everywhere else as my dad set up his cable TV company back in the 60s, which he was a pioneer in that. And uh, But it was everywhere I went, it was games with the neighborhood kids, whether it was in Ohio, Illinois, or Weston, Mass. And it was always kick the can was a, you know, and, and all those just great old games that they don't play anymore, I'm afraid, but kick the can and, and riding bikes all over the place. And and the highlight of growing up in Weston sports-wise was the Weston Little League. We had our own town Little League, and you had the farms, the minors, and the majors. And in the majors, when you got to be like 11 years old, 12 years old, whatever it was, you got the real uniform, head to toe, 
with the stirrup socks. Yeah, sure. And, you know, and I was on the Phillies and my dad was the coach. That'd be a coach I'd mentioned. My dad coached the Phillies. He played baseball at Amherst in college. And, uh, and we won the town championship. And that was, that was that. I mean, that was the best you could possibly do in terms of walking on air as a 12-year-old in Western Massachusetts. And do you think that that's where you started to get bitten by the competitive bug? Yeah, I mean, I, right. Or, or I might have said it differently, which is that that bug was always in there. But it, maybe it bit me at age 12, or maybe it was probably there at age two. Um, is sort of my guess is that some people are just sort of wired to sort of go out there and try to compete, um, which I don't mean to say boastfully. I'm, I, I'm just saying that I, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if it's a bite or if it's DNA. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a huge DNA component. I have three kids and they compete in different ways at different levels. And I have one of them that wouldn't quit. Right. And I just saw in him a different attitude. The last second of the game, he was running as hard as he was the first second of the game. Right, exactly. And it was just, you couldn't shut him off. Well, so getting the reward, I mean, I just love, I love playing on teams. I'm not a solo athlete. I'm a team athlete uh, to the extent I'm an athlete and, uh, or was. And uh, I love being on the team and being on the Phillies or whatever it was. And to this day, I'll meet, I'll run into somebody that I knew growing up in Weston. And I'll know that that guy was on the Red Sox or on the White Sox or on, we didn't have any Yankees, of course, but we did have Red Sox and White Sox and, and Phillies and Cubs. And I can identify, we're all identified to this day in our 50s by what team we played on when we were 10, 11 years old in West. Wick, uh, in your past, you had a important part of your journey and it included rowing. How did you start the practice of rowing? It's kind of an unusual sport. Um, and we just had uh, on a, a, a cinematographer, a, a woman who did a documentary um, on the most beautiful thing, which is a story about uh, a group of uh, young black kids in uh, the tough side of Chicago who end up actually using rowing as a way to avoid um, all the complexities of growing up in a neighborhood like that. Uh, That's Mary Mazio. Yes, she was on last week. One of my very best friends and is an Olympian, as you no doubt know, and uh, helped drag me down the river in the head of the Charles one year. We were in the same boat, which was a lot of fun. She's awesome. Um, She is truly incredible. Um, But anyway, rowing for me, uh, I've got to tell the story. You can cut it out of the podcast. But the story was I had played three sports in high school, but none of them very well. Not a gifted from in terms of coordination or or what you might normally call athleticism. That's not really me, unfortunately, um, at a collegiate level for sure. I could play in high school, but uh, so I got to college and I didn't know what to do um, sports-wise. But I knew I wanted to play for the college, and so I went to the crew meeting. And there's long, sixty-six foot long shells that are there that are about you know twenty inches wide, and they're awesome. Uh, back then, they were made out of wood. Uh, uh, beautiful craft, you know. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. These oars, you know, 13 feet long. And you're just saying, oh, man, getting this thing going must be amazing. And then I see that the captain is talking to a bunch of people, and he's wearing a hat that says Rollins College, which is in Florida, Winter Park, Florida. And I thought, Rollins College? Interesting. My high school girlfriend, with whom I was, you know, close, uh, had just accepted a tennis scholarship to Rollins and was going to be at Rollins the next four years while I was up at Princeton for four years. And I thought, 
wait a minute. I asked him, I, I have a question. You know, what's the Rollins at? He goes, oh, we go there for two weeks every spring. And I go, sign me up. <laughs> That's well, funny. I became a rower because of uh, affairs of the heart. But, uh, um, uh, and, but, but I fell in love, actually, uh, with rowing within a couple weeks with with being on the boat and, and with the guys who were on the team. And those are lifelong friends to this day, 40 years later. You know, one of the quotes that I read is um, – and this is from you, being an athlete at Princeton changed everything for me. It taught me that I had another gear inside and it taught me what it meant to be all in. Yeah. So where's the gear and who exposed that gear to you, Wick? And what do you mean all in? Like you weren't already all in? Yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't. I probably thought I was if I was trying to run fast or, or study hard in high school or something, but, but something about the, the rowing and the coaching and the teammates um, at Princeton, um, it, I just, I wanted it so badly. I wanted to be in the first boat. We had five boats. I wanted to be in the first boat and I wanted to win the races and then you get to take the shirt off the back of the opponent. So you go home, I'm getting goosebumps right now. You go home with a Harvard shirt over your shoulder or a Yale shirt or a Dartmouth shirt. And that guy rows back to the boat. You do that on the water after the race, and the guy rows back to the boathouse, uh, you know, shirtless. You know, yeah, and humble pie. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's awesome. And uh, and you don't want to give anybody your shirt. Um, so that's, you know, but, um, so you find an extra gear, I guess, I'm just trying to say, you, you realize that you're training six days a week from, you know, late August through, in some cases, early July, um, most of the years, because you're usually rowing internationally in the summer if you're good enough um, as a crew. And and so you're going 11 months a year, six days a week, and you're finding new levels of uh, pain, new levels of commitment, new levels of, of accomplishment. And I never could have done any of that. And never, I would have lived my whole life not experiencing that level of, you know, if I hadn't found it there at age 18, 19 at Princeton. Who's your coach at Princeton and, and what did he teach you about yourself that uh, was a discovery for you, Wick? Yeah, I know. It, it was my, my first coach uh, is, was Curtis Jordan, who is a, a sort of a legendary figure has become, we were his first, first stop in coaching. He was right out of Trinity College a year or two. He's only a, a couple of years older than I am, uh, but just an amazing guy with a light heart and a big smile, but he's got fire and steel inside, you know, and, um, and Curtis, uh, molded us all together as freshmen. And most of us hadn't rowed. Some, some guys had been recruited from the Andovers and Exeters and places, St. Paul's, but, um, at least half the team were walk-ons. I was a walk-on and, uh, and he molded us into a, uh, kind of a wrecking crew. I mean, we didn't want to take any, uh, second place to anybody. And then, had a great coach, Gary Kilpatrick, on the varsity the next three years, who took what Curtis had started and, and finished it off with us. But um, So I mentioned both of them. But Curtis became the U.S. Olympic coach. I mean, that's the level of coaching. He's a sort of a gold medalist type of uh, coach, and, uh, and we were lucky to be his first victims. But there was something about the way he coached or the way he connected with you that was – what I suspect is more meaningful from what I'm inferring from some of the stuff I read. There's a picture of him and you um, on one of the Princeton alumni web pages and stuff like that. 
What was his methodology? How did he get more out of you than what your high school coaches had done? Yeah, it was well, part of it, and I think it, it carries through to other coaches. I, I would think about mentioning in this discussion. Um, you want this. In my case, they were all guys. I remember someone saying, "You want these guys to, uh, you know, give you a look." And the look is either "nice job" or "what the hell was that?" You know, and it's sort of like the shirt. You know, you want the the shirt. You want them to think well of you. You want to make the coach proud. And, uh, and, and that's sort of something I look for in coaches when I, you know, I hire coaches now and Danny Ainge recommends them and we make a short list together and see how you is involved, who knows a ton about basketball played at Duke. You know, it's not just me, but if it goes badly, it really is my responsibility. I mean, I blame myself and I'm looking for people who would instill that still that kind of respect in me. And uh, Doc Rivers was a good example. When I met Doc, I just knew that Doc was the kind of guy that, you know, I'd run through a wall for that guy um, if he were coaching me. And so it's just sort of, it's that something, it's respect. You respect him and you want him to respect you, I guess. That dynamic is, is so valuable and there's something special about it. And we've talked about it in some of the upper, uh, other episodes, but um, it's a, it's a characteristic in a relationship that carries on through a young person's life. When you've had that connection with a coach and they unlock your potential and you earn their respect, that dynamic creates a whole different dimension for that young person. And, you know, I've seen it with my kids who have had great coaches, coaches that they couldn't let down, couldn't, wouldn't let down. And, there's this one story I tell where my oldest son, who you've met um, when he was an intern at the Celtics, he figured out a way to become a, um, a like a guy at the Red Sox where you'd wipe the seats and take the tickets. And he was still a senior in high school. And uh, he was taking the train up at night, coming home, and there was one delayed doubleheader, rain, took the last green line back to Providence, soaking wet, shivering. And I looked at him and I said, uh, hey, buddy, if you're over your skis, it's okay. Like, um, you know, you don't have to do this. And he looked at me and goes, if I ever told Coach Willie that I was cold or I couldn't stay on the field because it's raining or was late, you know what he would have done with me? Now, my son went to a really good prep school and he learned calculus and he learned how to speak Chinese fluently. But the lesson Coach Willie gave him is will will pay him spades for the rest of his life the no quit the responsibility to something other than yourself i think it, i think it's right and it becomes a responsibility to yourself to be the best you in a sense but it's it's defined as what can you do for other people and for your teammates and, and where can you all go together you know i said i don't want to choke up here i'm a I typically uh, do if I talk about this, but my son Campbell has very, uh, you know, some significant special needs and is a wonderful person, um, but um, has challenges. And I told Curtis Jordan that if he hadn't uh, <clears throat> coached me the way he had, if I hadn't learned those things, uh, I didn't know if I'd still be here really or if I would have been able to be there for Campbell as he needed me and his mom to be, especially in his early years. So, you know, I learned a lot 
Yeah, coaches do that. They bring out the tenacity and the steel in us, and they also teach us uh, in some ways. I mean, and I talk a lot about this guy, Coach Willie, for my kids, and I volunteered on his thing. I was holding the first down markers, and I saw the gentle hand he used but the firm hand he used at the same time, and it was so inspirational to watch that develop. Well, I see it. I see. I saw it with my teammates and myself with Curtis. We wanted him to be proud, you know, and we wanted to go win the thing for ourselves, but win it for him and for Gary Kilpatrick. And then, I, you know, you see the players diving on the floor all over the place for Doc Rivers and for Brad Stevens. And those guys don't even – the most eloquent thing Doc and Brad can do is, is not say anything and just look at them. Like, what the hell was that? You know, and, and if you're the right kind of player, if you've got that Celtic quality, you're going to care. Let's talk about the Celtics. Another great quote from you, Wick. I did a little research. <laughs> when you bought the team, you, you made an interesting statement, and I thank you for the statement because I think as a as a Celtics fan growing up, and I remember being on, was it Channel 38 or 56, and it was in black and white on my TV, and the snow on the picture looked you couldn't tell if it was at the ball, the shoe, or the snow, right? Growing up in Fall River, and I, I just remember adoring Larry. Black. What's the that? Shoes were black. Red had them wear black shoes so that they wouldn't show the dirt. That's funny. So, yeah. and, and and like Larry Bird, right? I mean, that guy shooting with his left hand, layups with his left hand, three-pointers with the left hand. I mean, the guy was just an, an incredible – what an athlete. And so when you bought the team, I read this following quote. You said, let's get this right. This isn't just any team. This is the Celtics. Now, as a fan, I'm like, wow, thank you. (laughs) Right? Because I care for that team. And that's an interesting thing about professional sports teams, right? Sometimes the fans, it's like the team feels like they're a part of my family. Like, it's almost like we've got a seat at the dinner table for Fenway Park and the Garden. And the Bruins, right? And and the Celtics. It's like the, you, they're welcome at the dinner table. So what was that like when you started to go through the acquisition process? And how did oh. you end up thinking that you wanted to own this team? Well, it, it's it, there's just no uh, – once you have an idea like this, which just hit me, um, you, you can't eat or sleep, basically. I lost 17 pounds in the process of uh, – buying control of the Celtics, my partners over two and a half, three months. Um, I just, I didn't eat or sleep. Um, I was all in. And, uh, but I got the idea because I watched the Red Sox. They were sold. Took about a year. They were auctioned off. Painstaking process. Bids came in. Other bids came in. Uh, My dad tried to get involved in that. At at one point was involved a bit uh, in some early rounds of bidding. You know, so it was on the top of my mind. And, um, and I got to meet Tom Werner along the way and, and others. And then they went, ended up in, you know, buying the team. And I thought, this Boston team, this just sold for, I think it was $660 million, including Nesson, you know, and, and Fenway. And I'm just thinking, this is, what, that, that's a crazy amount of money. And this, I mean, it, it's insane. And, but, but what an amazing thing. And, and maybe they could win the World Series and break the curse. Maybe they could win the thing, you know. And I thought, what a way to live your life. And I was sitting in my investment office back then in the middle of a career. I was 41 years old and I'm sort of going, well, I'm going to work again and then I'm going home. And it was just kind of going along. And I looked up at the wall, or I, at least I think I did, 
And I saw an old rowing picture and I thought, you know, I remember what it was like to be going for a championship. And that was the, the me I wanted to be again. And I said, let's go. I, what if I could buy a Boston team and win a championship? And there's nothing to do with money in there. Um, and I didn't, I'm not made of money to this day. And I certainly wasn't back then either. And, um, but I figured I'd just find the money somehow, but I needed to get a hold of one of these teams and I needed to grab that. I needed to win that trophy. That's all there was to it. And Celtic. And so I thought about the Bruins. I thought about the Celtics. I knew I didn't have NFL money. I didn't have money for any of these teams, but I knew I didn't have, you know, Patriots money and Robert Kraft had just bought it fairly recently. But um, I thought about the Bruins. I, I ended up, I found the Celtics owner and it was a public company. It was on the New York Stock Exchange at the time, but I found the Celtics owner. I got an appointment with him. He was down in his office in New York City, Manhattan, and he hadn't uh, been to a game in three or four years or something, some period of time. And I thought, you know, this is interesting. I'd done some reading, like you did some reading, I guess, on me. And, uh, and, and I sort of thought, well, here's a, this is a blueprint for a guy that's not really enjoying the game. He's not going to the game. And maybe this, there could be a financial aspect to this that, that might make sense. I wonder if I could make an offer. And so I, he was nice enough to give me an appointment. And I went down and I said, would you sell me the Celtics? And he said, they're not for sale. I said, well, is there a crazy number? And he sort of said, well, there's a crazy number, uh, I guess. And he named a crazy number. And I said, so if I give you that number, will, will you sell me the team? And he sort of the natural thing for him to do was, I guess, it just flowed naturally to say, well, yes, he was sort of stuck. I mean, he wasn't really stuck, but he was nice enough to say yes. And we shook hands and I had three months to go find the money. And I, there was a three digit figure and I didn't even have, I might've had one of the digits. Okay. I mean, that's the level of not having the money. When I say I didn't have the money, I didn't have the money. But what I had was the confidence I could go find some partners who would see it my way and let me run the thing and we'd team up and buy it. Um, but I'd have control. That's the NBA rule. And 25 partners later, led by Steve Paliuka and Bob Epstein, Jim Pilata, Paul Edgerly, um, and my father, I should mention at the very beginning, um, we got hold of the team December 31st. 2002. And you named the LLC Banner 17. And uh, tell me a little bit about why you chose that name. That's the first question I was asked. We closed on December 31st. We had a game at the garden that day. The closing was delayed. It actually happened at, during halftime of the game. <laughs> and, uh, and after the game was the first press conference of the new ownership group and six or seven or eight of us were there and, they said, Mr. Grossbeck, and the first question came from the oldest, crustiest Boston reporter of all, who I will remain nameless because I just said he was crusty. But uh, he said, uh, Mr. Grossbeck, I don't really know who you are, but what I do know is you named your company Banner 17. Last time I checked, there were 16 banners in the garden. What are you talking about? I said, well, you're right there. And I sort of thought, oh, no, here we go. Like, Welcome to ownership. That's not really a softball necessarily. So I said, well, uh, uh, Banner 17, um, I, I, you know, this, by the way, this was buried in the documents. This wasn't in a press release that we called it Banner 17. He had to find it. Okay. It was hidden in there. There were like multiple shell companies and that was one of the names. Okay. But anyway, uh, and, and he said, what's this Banner 17? I said, look, well, there are 16 banners up there and it's named Banner 17. That's pretty much self-explanatory. 
And he said, well, why don't you go ahead and explain to us, are you guaranteeing a championship to the fans of the Celtics? And what's the first thing you know? Never guarantee anything, right, to fans? And I said, I'll guarantee you this. We're going to win Banner 17 or I'm going to die trying. And so go. I just went there. I spoke from, spoke from the heart. And I would it would nearly kill me if I were 30, 40 years in and then won the thing, I'd be pretty miserable. Um, we got lucky in 08, and we're trying to get lucky again. But um, I'm still here, as I like to say. I'm still alive. Tell me a little bit about uh, Red Auerbach and his relationship during the transition of ownership. It must have been, I mean, what a, what a mentor. I mean, what a cool guy. Cool, uh, volatile, hilarious, brilliant, uh, the most compelling. I mean, there are a few people in my life I could put up there on a very small, like Mount Rushmore, and he'd be one of them, uh, just in terms of like, you can't take your eyes off them, you can't miss a syllable, or a puff of smoke, you know, cigar smoke. But uh, Red insisted on meeting me and Steve Feliuca after we bought control. Or while it was pending, actually, I think we were still raising the money and we we're going to close in like three weeks. And we had a meeting with Red. And that was in Washington, D.C., by the way, in his office. He was always D.C. based, um, which not everybody knows. And so we went down to D.C. nervously. And we knew that if Red, if we got to this meeting and Red came out and said to his many friends in the press, these guys don't know what they're doing. We probably not had the team. We probably wouldn't be able to finish raising the money. We probably wouldn't be successful uh, without support, fan support. I mean, it would be a, a major thing, um, a major negative. But not just to make it about us. We also wanted Red to be happy that we were coming in. Right? Sure. Red was no longer with the team, by the way. He had been let go, and we had already decided we would have him back. I don't remember exactly when we decided, but we'd have him back as team president if he would have us. But So this meeting was so important in so many ways. But one of them is he had a button he could push and basically blow us up. Um, and but, So we went in, and, um, and Red's behind a cloud of cigar smoke with, with all sorts of memorabilia all over the walls. In, here in D.C., it's like a Celtics shrine. And he just looks at us and looks at, you know, the two of us. He goes, so, so what's going on? He goes, you guys are like the new owners? That's what's going on? I said, well, Red, yes, we're, we're, we're on the way to being the new owners. We've got, a, we've got the agreement. We're really excited about it. He said, I've been through more owners, you know, than you've been through Kleenex boxes. He said, I think since 19, Walter Brown was amazing. And the rest of them, you know, and he made some remark, you know. But it's like, I've been through 16 ownership groups since uh, Walter Brown or some number. And by the way, none of them had been Boston-based. Since 1963, the Celtics, 40 years, the Celtics have been owned out of town. Isn't that interesting? New York, Ballantine Beer Company, John Y. Brown in Kentucky, Marvin, uh, somebody in New York, and on and on and on. Florida, you know, so it, was, it wasn't a Boston thing. And so we said, look, we're Boston-based, Boston-born and raised. We want to bring the team home, and we'd love your help, and we'd like to try to, you know, get it back to where it needs to be, Celtic pride. And he just looked at us, and he sort of studied us. He's asked us, he asked us a few more questions. Um, he said, there's one thing I've got a list. So he pulled out the list, and he said, top of the list, he said, such and such a person was one of my first hires. He's the best guy in the league, and you got to keep him in your front office doing business. 
And I had already decided, because I had met him, and I hadn't had a satisfactory interview from my standpoint. I'd already decided to let this guy go. Uh-oh. And I, this sounds uh, self-promotional uh, or whatever, but the, the God's truth is I, um, I stopped. Like, time stopped. And then I said, Red, I, I have to tell you, I'm going to go a different direction with that one. And I'm not this brave, okay? This is this was. I don't know what happened, okay? I'm not. This isn't me saying this is how you do it, everybody. This is me saying when I said these words, I could like see them leave my mouth, and I was wondering, can I get them back? <laughs> I was very worried, but I said I'm, I'm actually going to make a change there because they're running the ticket office out of file folders and and paper, and and we're going to computerize and we're going to do things differently and. I said, Red, I hope you'll see. I'm going to take great care of this very nice person, but I'm going to go a different direction and revitalize the, the operation. And uh, and Red looked at me, and he looked at Paliuk. He looked back at me. Paliuka looked at me. And the whole tipping point of the whole thing, and Red said, okay, I'll back you. Wow. But secondly, wow. no dancing girls. So, <laughs> so we went with that one for six years, and finally we talked to him about letting us have a dance. I was watching, um, there's a, Sloan School of Management, uh, which is the graduate program at MIT, has a sports technology program. And I was watching an interview during one of their conferences. It's you. It is the owner of um, LAFC and Scott O'Neill, um, who's the CEO of Harris, Harris Blitzer, which owns most of the Philadelphia professional teams. It's a really interesting interview. And um, if, if somebody wants to get a better understanding of what the future of professional sports looks like from these three owners' perspective, it's worth tuning in on. But there's a, a piece there where you're talking about um, authenticity and the urge or need to maintain authenticity of the team and of the experience. You talk about um, how exciting it is to go to a live event at the garden and i've gone i remember seeing i was there at the final versus the lakers i think it was 85 86 87 i had obstructed view seats in the old garden i scalped them and uh for people who never went to the old garden it was such a wreck of a building it was such a disaster the floors didn't have drains in them the circus would come to town there'd be elephant waste and the smell of the place it had fungus growing from the rafters it was full of smoke at all times it cigarette smoking was allowed back then indoors and do you remember how steep it was like you'd be up in the balcony and you could look down right onto the court vertigo twice as steep as a modern but it was revered no it's fabulous because the parquet floor was the parquet floor and i remember listening to an interview with bird and he said there's soft spots on this floor and it's a home advantage because I know where they are and the other guys don't. But it was it was an incredible place. Now, we have a new garden. It's magnificent. It's a beautiful facility. And the guy from Philadelphia, the guy who's running these Philadelphia teams, Scott O'Neill, said, and, and a fact in the interview, he said, do you know that less than 1% of NBA fans um, get to actually see – a live game, go to a live game, and you quickly busted on him. You said, is that just in Philadelphia? Because 
<laughs> you guys aren't selling a lot of tickets. He said, no, we're sold out now. And you're like, yeah, I know you're sold out. It was kind of a, it was a funny change. I could tell. I could tell because you, knowing you, you wouldn't do that to somebody you weren't comfortable with. So you were obviously playing like brothers there. But what's it like? Tell our listeners what's it like to go to a Celtics game in the garden if you've never been. How would you describe that event today? Well, we tried to, uh, and, and nobody's been since last February anyway, or March. So um, we hope, appreciate everybody hanging in with us. We still have, we're still sold out and we still have a waiting list for tickets, um, even after a year of being dark uh, to fans. So we are very appreciative of everybody. And we're fans who bought the team. So we're all sort of in it together. We try to be. We are. But, um, but you know, we want the experience of going there to be about the basketball. We want it to be, this is a team that's on the way up, hopefully, or near the top, or we can see it from here. Sort of like when you and I climbed a mountain together, it takes a while to get to the top sometimes. But so, we just, get up that mountain. so so now that you brought that up, for everybody to know, I was uh, fortunate enough, Wick and his partners invited CEOs of their portfolio companies out to retreat. And uh, Wick is... Um, a rower, Wick won a national champion. I'm interviewing Wick right now. I can see a rowing machine in his background. There's a Peloton bike. There's uh, some yoga mats. Wick's in really good shape. Uh, yeah, if you like oval shape. Oval well, no, Wick, come on, be nice. So there were two events to take place at the CEO retreat. There was a fly fishing thing, and then there was this, it was sold as a mountain trek, a, a light trail trek. So I think the hotel or the lodge that we're staying at maybe was a couple thousand feet above sea level and a little, you know, I was like, oh my. It was, that's 7,000 feet Okay, above. so I was 7,000. I was trying to be humble. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had gotten up at about 3 in the morning to get to Boston for the 6 a.m. flight to get the connection to Chicago. And, and it was fun, and we were all excited. And this group of men and women were all alphas. They were all A-type personalities. These were movers and shakers. Now, as people get to know me, you could consider me maybe a little bit more sensitive or maybe more introspective, Wick, to be fair, right? We both, you got pretty introspective on the way up, I must say, but you got there. Well, man. so Wick, you were so nice because, so we, everybody starts off in a pack and then the pack gets further and further separated as Mark Juan, your other partner, is effectively. It's, it's, the whole thing is his fault, okay? Effectively it's, it's, running up the freaking mountain. He's running up straight up the mountain, right? And so, Wick being a quiet leader. No, I think of you as this. You're like, hey, Goldberg's fallen back. I'm going to hang out with him. I'm going to make sure that the end of the trail ends up at the top. So you were really, you know, it was nice. And you were like, yeah, you're doing great, Gary. And, you know, you'll get to the top. And because I was huffing and puffing, like I was hurting towards, you know, you get above the tree line and then I'm like, you know, gasping for air. And, and then you were gracious and it was, it was a fun time. We, we got up the mountain together and that's a, a metaphor for a lot of things in life. It's, and, and it's more fun to go up together than uh, on your own. It was, and it, and it was, and you were gracious during it. So, so back to the Celtics, what do you think about the role that professional sports are playing right now as it relates to youth sports, Wick? So I'm a little kid. I, I'm growing up. Like, I'm playing basketball in my backyard. I'm watching LeBron James. I'm watching whoever it is. Do you think that there's a responsibility for professional sports to guide that kid in some sort of direction or, or be an example? Well, you know, I'd like to take it 
you know, this is what you do in media training, wherever they say, what question do you want to, you know, what answer do you want to give? Never mind the question. But what I'd like to actually do is talk about pro sports in society, and it includes little kids and youth sports. But it's, you know, I think our guys, and we're partnering with our players, and we, the ownership is committed and supportive, but it's wrong for us to claim that we're out front because the players are out front, especially on the issues, the social issues. But what's happened all summer, what's happened with the realization of a lot of people, such as myself, that there's more racial inequity and injustice in the country than I had hoped or thought. I was ignorant of it. Not willfully ignorant, but I was completely ignorant, really. I thought things were sort of fine. And I turn, it turns out that, you know, there, there's a guy in my ownership group who remained nameless. Uh, it's up to him to comment. But he said, you know, he's a, a black guy. Uh, very successful, wonderful person. And he said, Wick, you don't realize that when I drive through Weston, Wellesley, or whatever town he might have mentioned, he said, I'll get stopped mm. at least a third of the time, driving my Mercedes in my suit. Mm. You know, now I don't know if he said Weston or Wellesley, but I do know that he's saying, Wick, you don't have any idea. Yeah. And I didn't know. And so Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart and others have sort of uh, helped uh, educate me, but they're educating the world. You know, Black Lives Matter on the court in the bubble and the social statements made during the games, before the games, after the games. So we're using our platform, our collective platform for good and showing people that it's not enough to just play the game. You actually have to live the life the right way. And as ownership, you take responsibility for managing and promoting the use of that voice. Is that correct? I yeah, for managing and promoting, or just yeah, supporting, supporting, and being part, yeah, supporting, being part of it, encouraging. Yeah, uh, exactly right. I, I do feel over these eighteen years of being in the NBA that there is a partnership with the players. It is not. It, it is. We're all in it together. We're trying to grow it in many ways, including on social issues now. And that's, that hadn't, I wouldn't have mentioned that four years ago as much as I mentioned it now, but it really is that way. And, um, and I think we're making a difference. That's awesome. Wick, the last question I have for you is a question that we ask a lot of our, our guests and it goes like this. You've played in a lot of games. You've played in a lot of sports. I know that you are a competitive guy. It's in your DNA. You bought a professional team, so you've watched a lot of games now. And I know you bought that team to get to Banner 17 and now to get to Banner 18 and 19 and 20. It's just part of your DNA. So my question for you, Wick, is what have you gained more from in your life, the wins or the losses? <laughs> I, I have, you know, the losses make the wins more enjoyable. The losses teach you what you need to do, but I have gained a lot more from the wins because I just freaking – wake up every day happy. I have to be honest. I'm not going to lie to you on this podcast. I don't want you uh, to lie. Our listeners no, demand the I, truth. I don't lie and see the losses. You know, I could do without the losses. Um, I've lost 18, I think, games in a row at one point, um, and I didn't need that in my life. But um, what I've gained uh, from the whole experience of sport and being coached by some great people and encouraged by teammates and, and coaches is uh, – is a, a inner uh, more strength than I would have had otherwise, and it's enabled me to try to live a life that I'll be uh, proud of. Awesome, Wick. Uh, your stories about your coaches, the stories about Red Auerbach. 
I like to end our show by by saying to the listeners, hey, if if listening to this reminds you of a coach that inspired you or changed your life, it's time to call up coach because coach really wants to hear from you. It's true. They love it. They love it. I wish I could call Red, um, but I talked to Gary and Curtis uh, and my dad, three coaches I mentioned uh, frequently, and it, it, it's a meaningful thing. And if they want to follow the Celtics, I assume you guys are on Twitter, and and if they want to write you, they can write to you at uh, at 100 Causeway Street, or uh, they can use Wick at Celtics.com, W Y C at Celtics.com, and um, uh, I read all my emails and I answer most of them. Awesome. <laughs> Depends on the email, um, but it's I, I, I welcome it and I appreciate everybody hanging in with us during, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, and and once a Celtics fan, we can't. It's like you said, you wake up and it's in you, and uh, I'll never be anything but that. Just the way I, the way I was born. I'm right there with you, Gary. This has been great. Awesome. Thanks, Wick. Thanks so much for ha- for you know joining us today and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. See you. On the whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one stop shop for customized team apparel delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com. <laughs>